0: How many people in your life just want something from you? Think about your jobs. Think about your families. Think about your relationships. Think about how many people in our lives just want something from us. If you're willing to go a little bit deeper, think about how many times we relate to people just wanting something from them. Happens a lot, doesn't it? When we gather for worship, we are being reminded that God wants something for us, that he is committed to our good. Hear this, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. Beloved, let's respond to a God that wants something for us and who's committed to doing good in us. I'd love to look with you this afternoon. Well, not yet, is it? i got a few minutes. This morning, excuse me, Matthew chapter 5. So if you have a copy of God's Word, please turn there. I'm going to be reading verses 13 through 16. And you might remember, if you've been here, but if you're just visiting with us, uh, we are spending the summer thinking about the Sermon on the Mount. And that takes up the part in, in Matthew's Gospel, chapters 5 through 7. So we're spending this summer looking at various parts of those chapters together. And before I read this chapter this morning, what I wanted to float out there to you to think about is what's really challenging about studying the Sermon on the Mount And what's really difficult about studying the Sermon on the Mount is this. We read the Sermon on the Mount, and for whatever reason, our default mode is to read the Sermon on the Mount and hear it as marching orders, as if to say what I'm about to read about salt and light, oh, we just do this, and then we'll be good people. Or if we do this, it's what it means, this is what a good person looks like. They act like this. And I think that oftentimes we hear the Sermon on the Mount that way. We hear it that way because we are such a results-oriented people that we read these things and we just think, yep, well, I'll just go do it. This is what it mean. And if I do that, then God will accept me. Or if I do that, I'll be a good person. And the danger of thinking that the Sermon on the Mount is just giving marching orders, the danger of that is it reveals how we feel superior to other people. What I mean by that is this. This morning we're going to look at hearing about salt and light. And we hear, be salt. And we think to ourselves, well, stuff out there is really bad. We're pretty good in here. And because things are bad out there, we just need to go find a project and go and fix it. And I want you to remember that when you read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is preaching to us. He's pastoring us. He wants us to remember that we are a deeply needy people. Whatever we think we think we might do in the world around us, it's only from the reality that we need the exact same thing and that our neediness doesn't go away. It's never eliminated. We still need Life-giving things too. We still need Jesus to give us life. So chew on that a little bit. It's a way to say something that I've said for the last couple of weeks in a little bit different way. Hear this. This is Jesus' sermon. This is His word to us. Matthew 5:13 through16. "You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we gather here as your people. Lord Jesus, we gather here as your bride. Holy Spirit, we gather as those whom you are pouring the love of the Father into our souls. We ask that you would continue to deal with us and teach us, challenge us, rebuke us, train us, equip us, So that our whole lives might say that what you say is true. So that we might be a people who are formed and shaped by truth. And that we might learn over and over in new and deeper ways to love good news, the truth, the gospel. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. There are two questions that the Sermon on the Mount is answering for us. There are two questions that God is answering for us in the Sermon on the Mount. The first question is this, what does God want for us? And the second question is, what is he doing in us? What is he doing in me? The Sermon on the Mount is answering those two questions. You see, oftentimes, if you're a follower of Christ, you feel the pressure of two other questions that are very different. Those questions are these. What are you gonna do for God and what do you want from God? All kinds of the most popular Christian books that you can find are basically answering those questions. What are you gonna do for God and what do you want from God? And in the Sermon on the Mount, God is presenting us and answering two very different questions. He really wants us to think about these questions as more important than the other questions that we often think are more important. The questions that are more important for us to think about through our families, through our jobs, as we sit here this morning, as we leave here and go and fulfill the callings that God has on our lives, the two questions that are way more important, what does God want for us? What is God doing in us? What is he doing through us? And the answer to those two questions is this. A cruciform community. What is God doing in us? What does He want for us? He wants us to be part of a cruciform community. You might remember I answered this, explained this to you last week. A cruciform community is this. Let me give you, let me explain it to you by giving you the definition. A cruciform community is a people that God is building and shaping through the cross. God is building and shaping a community by or through the cross. That's what a cruciform community is. That's what God is doing in us. That's what he wants for us. Now let me show it to you. Remember we talked about this last week? Let me show it to you. Let me show you what a cruciform community looks like. Let me show you what it looks like that he's forming and shaping us by or through the cross. Last week we looked at the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 5. Remember, a cruciform community, a people that are being formed and shaped through the cross, they are people who know that they are needy. Remember verses 3, 4, and 5? That that we are a people who are poor in spirit. We are a people who mourn. We are a people who are meek. We are needy people. But it's not only that we're needy, it's that as God Forms and shapes and builds a community through the cross. What he's doing is that he's giving us a new life. Which means, look at verses 7 through 10 and 12. That we are a merciful people. We are a people who are pure in heart. We are a people who are peacemakers. And it even goes to such an extent that we would be willing to die We are willing to be persecuted for these things, for what we believe, for who God is, for what he's doing. And all of that is anchored in verse 6, that we have a righteousness that we've been given. Today, we're going to add to that. So a cruciform community, let me show it to you. A cruciform community looks like a people that are growing in their neediness, A cruciform people looks like a people that are being given new life. And where we used to not be merciful, now we're merciful. We used to not be concerned about being pure, but now we are. We used to not compare or care about being peacemakers, but now we do. Even to the point where we're willing to die. We're needy. We have new life. And today, in verses 13 through 16, we're looking at this. That this new life we have... We're supposed to live it for the life of the world. That a cruciform community is a people who are needy, who have new life, and are living that new life for the life of the world. Let's look at salt, let's look at light, and then let's look at constant encouragement. Look at verse 13. This is what Jesus says You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You know, salt has two functions. One of the functions of salt is that it is a preservative. Think about how salt is used in food. You know that salt is used to keep meat from decaying because things naturally are prone to decay. Salt is used to slow that process down. Now, this is very easy to connect with life, isn't it? Here's a fact. The world that we live in, because of sin and because of rebellion against God, everything is trending toward decay. Everything is falling apart. Everything is breaking down. You know this. I know this. We feel The older you get, the more you feel it. The more wisdom and experience you have, the more you see it. The more experience you have, the more you anticipate the falling down and breaking down of things, it is normal for us to look at the world, whether it's our jobs or just everything in general, and realize that everything is falling apart. Everything is rotting. You see, a world that tries to live without God is really not going anywhere. A world that's trying to live without God, do life without God. It's not going anywhere. And any other message other than following God and what he says and who he reveals himself to be be in the scriptures is just death. It's just death. And we know this. We feel it. We experience it. We see it all the time. Let me get more specific. Someone that I read recently made this observation about our country. We are more in debt, more obese, more addicted, more medicated than any other people in U.S. history. Think about that. It's not to say that being on medication is wrong. It's not to say that people shouldn't be on medication at all. There are times in my life in which I have been on medication. Perhaps you have too. The point is we see and experience the decay all the time. There's all kinds of frivolous debt and on and on and on and on. Because we can't fix our lives through those things. Having more money doesn't fix things. Having medication may help and in some ways is absolutely necessary. But it doesn't ultimately fix us, does it? I can tell you, as someone who has recently had a birthday... At 44 years old, I sure would love to take one pill and that takes care of all of my problems. I can eat whatever I want, whenever I want. I can have enough sleep, I can sleep well. Wouldn't it be nice to just take one little pill and that mean that I could live the way I wanted, do whatever I wanted? That would be a dream come true in some ways, wouldn't it? And the fact that we see this all around us Helps us understand, Jesus is saying, look, as as a follower, realize that one of the things that you do in the world in which you live is you preserve things. You are helping slow down decay, slow down the rotting, because you realize you feel it too. And the only way you know to slow that down is to connect to Jesus. And the only way to understand rotting and death is to understand what Jesus says about it and the hope that we have. Now, here's another function of salt. And this may be one that you hadn't thought of before or heard of. You see, salt also has an agricultural function. And this is probably closer to what Jesus meant in the first century. Way back, the ancient Romans and the Chinese used salt as a fertilizer, as a matter of fact, if, if you were to research today, there are still countries that use salt as a fertilizer. Um, I did some research this week on the coconut. And I found that, um, that the Philippines, uh, they're the second leading producers of coconuts in the world by far. And they have done all this research, the government of the Philippines has done all this research about how you can use salt as a fertilizer, to further stimulate production of coconuts. See, what salt does is it gets into the soil and it helps things grow. It moisturizes. It can destroy weeds and allow others that have deeper roots than weeds get more nutrients. By the way, this also makes sense of what Jesus says in another gospel account in Luke 14 that's similar to ours here but a little bit different. You might remember Jesus says this in another place. But what happens if salt loses its saltiness? It's not good for the soil or the manure pile. It's meant to just be thrown out. You see, salt was used to cover manure to keep it from rotting. It was used as a fertilizer itself to help the fertilizer manure continue to function the way it should. Jesus is saying that we as followers should be those that not only are interested in preserving, but are interested in fertilizing, are interested in being put down so that we can see things grow. It's not just that we are merely trying to keep decay from happening. It's that we ought to be stimulants for growth. It means no matter where we go, it means no matter what we're doing, that we are concerned about life, that we are concerned about growth. It means that Jesus wants us to not only have somewhat of a defensive posture toward the world in which we live, but also an offensive posture in the world in which we live. At the same time, we ought to be a people that are cultivating life and helping things grow. Well, not only does Jesus tell us to be salt, but he also says to be light. Look at verse 14 and 15. And 16, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You remember we looked at this when we were working our way through the Gospel of John where Jesus says he is the light of the world. Do you remember some of this? See, light is what is a source of health. It's a source of life. It's a source of warmth. Light helps dispel darkness. It even has healing properties. It contains a certain power. Remember we thought about the fact you can have too much light? You know, you can be blinded. Other times, you can have too much. But light is absolutely essential. It's important. Do you know people like this? That are just rays of light? Do you know people that just are effusive in the light and warmth that they bring? I'm not talking about a personality that's just magnetic. I'm talking about someone. Do you know someone when you think of them, you just think of light? They're warm, they're encouraging, they're helpful. They mean something. They care about you. When I was at Dabney's um, graduation from eighth grade, end of the year award banquet, uh, it was fascinating to be there uh, because there were all kinds of awards that were given, something that obviously as a parent of three kids, we've done this quite a bit as our kids move from one grade to the next, and there are awards given for uh, uh, straight A's and Uh, A's and B's. There are are teachers' awards that are given for those that have excelled in all of the various subjects that their kids have. And after the teachers and the principal went through every common award that you would receive, there was one teacher that got up and gave a very special award that, to my knowledge, hadn't been given before, at least not in the years that we have been there. And the award that they gave was in special recognition for a particular student who simply shined. This was also a student who wasn't the smartest person in that room by far. They had some deficiencies and they had some things that were obvious if you looked at them. And when they mentioned Kevin and Kevin came up to get his award, the whole place erupted just because he was a ray of light. And after it was over, we were riding home and I asked Dabney, I said, Dabney, do you know Kevin? And she just got this huge smile on her face. You see, Kevin seemed to be that type of person that just lit up a room. Not because he was the smartest, not because he had the most Magnetic personality. He was just someone that was a ray of light. And people knew that he was full of life. Jesus is saying that he has a people, and God is forming and shaping a people that are full of life. We are to be a people that are full of life, full of light. Now remember, Jesus is saying throughout the Sermon on the Mount that there is only one foundation that can make sense of life. Jesus is spending these chapters five, six, and seven working out the reality that there is only one kind of foundation that can actually carry the weight of a full and meaningful life. And that foundation, the only one, That foundation is made of rock. That foundation is Jesus. Do you remember us talking about this a couple weeks ago? Jesus is after the foundation through the whole Sermon on the Mount. That's where he ends. And remember, in saying that there's only one foundation, Jesus is telling us to beware of the counterfeit. Remember this? Beware of the counterfeit, because the counterfeit looks very similar. The counterfeit looks very similar, but it's not the real thing. It's not the real thing at all. It's just someone who has built their life on sand. Remember, if you go back through and read the Sermon on the Mount, what you will find, it is not as though Jesus says, you know, there are some people that have fruit and some people that don't. That sure would be easy to identify, wouldn't it? But he doesn't say that. He says everyone is bearing some kind of fruit. He doesn't say that there are people that give and people that don't. But he's saying that when you give, give like this, right? Because everyone is giving. When Jesus talks about people that obey commandments, like those who try not to murder and those who are Trying not to commit adultery. They're trying to follow the commandments. And Jesus says, Yes, you've heard it said that obedience to those commandments looks like this, but I'm going to tell you it goes much deeper than that. Jesus says there's a counterfeit. Jesus is saying there is one that looks an awful lot like the real thing, and it's not real. It's a life, it's an identity. It's a whole way of living built upon sand and it's not real. So here, it's not as though Jesus is saying one has light and another doesn't. He's saying there are two groups of people. They're doing good things. One has a tendency to keep their light under a bowl. One has a tendency to hide the light. One has a tendency to seclude and just to live around other people that have that same light. One has a tendency to live just with people who are just like us. And Jesus is saying, don't live that life. Don't be disconnected from others that aren't like you. You need to go out. You need to engage with people that aren't like you, that don't think like you, that have different stories than we do. We need to engage with those who are not like us. You see, the key idea of a counterfeit, when you think about counterfeit salt and counterfeit light, is this. The counterfeit does everything for self. The counterfeit does everything for self. Salt and light are working for self. Jesus is saying that's counterfeit. Salt is supposed to be used to enhance others' I'm not someone who loves salt. I don't use it on a lot of my foods, but I do love it on my steak. I love eating steak and I love putting salt on my steak. And then after I finish eating and enjoying my steak, I don't put my fork down and my knife down and say, man, that was good salt. I say, man, that was a good steak. Salt is for others. It is not for self. The counterfeit, the counterfeit means that we are involved for the purpose of self. Look at how great I am. Look at how superior I am. Light is for others. The counterfeit is to use light for self, to keep with those that agree. To make ourselves look more prominent. The counterfeit is always alienating to others. Light is for the good of others. Salt and light function in which we leave here and we go back to our homes and we do our jobs and we live in our neighborhoods and we care about the place that God has us and we're thinking about how can we make this more beautiful? How can we see more growth? How can we see more life? Where can we see more life? Salt and light are for others. God is forming and shaping a community in which we are living and existing for others. And we are wanting to see growth and change, not just sitting here by ourselves, disengaged, he wants us to continue to be engaged and selfless. To put a button on it, I'll say it this way. Salt and light are in this way. They're distinct, they're engaged, and the counterfeit is selfish. And the real thing is distinct and engaged and selfless selfless. Now here's the constant encouragement. You know what Jesus says here? Look at verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Here is constant encouragement for us. If you are here and you are following the Lord Jesus, don't let the idea of the counterfeit scare you to death. If you're continuing to come back to Jesus and you're continuing to learn from him and he's continued to expose things in your life and you're bringing what he exposes back to him and you're acknowledging that and finding power in him to fight against those things, you don't need to worry about the counterfeit at all. The counterfeit is for those who think, oh, I'm pretty good. I've got it together. When Jesus writes this and he tells us so that you would do good works, What Jesus is communicating there is not works that are necessarily just right or wrong, although that's true, but he could have used a different word. He's actually communicating the idea that what we do would be beautiful. That's the word that he uses. So he's saying that your intentions matter. Your motivations for doing everything matters. It's not just do you do the right thing or do you do the wrong thing, but do you do it in such a way in which you have, in which I have, the proper motive in which we are thinking about others and the glory of God, not self. And Jesus is encouraging us that even times when we don't do the right thing, sometimes our motives are for the glory of God, and he ends up teaching us what the right thing to do is when we've done the wrong thing. He's encouraging us. And even more than that, look at what else he says. Do all these things because God is your Father. Good works, being salt and light, is because God is your Father. Jesus is saying being salt and light is entirely predicated on the fact that you have a special relationship with God before you obey Before you can please God, you have to know him as your father. You have to know him through Jesus. In other words, when we obey, it's not because we're trying to get God's approval or we're not trying to keep it. We're obeying and following because we have his approval. And knowing that he loves us as a son, as a daughter, is what fuels us to live in a way that pleases him in a way that's right and beautiful. and Beloved, don't forget that Jesus says these words. Specifically, look at how he starts verse 13 and how he starts verse 14. You are. Jesus says that to you. Jesus says that to me. Jesus is telling us this. Every other way of looking at life out there is always trying to figure out how to become what I should be. How can I become what I want to be? Everything else motivates us from what we don't have. In your jobs, you're motivated by what you're not. You're not this, and you need to get that, right? Here is Jesus motivating his people from what we have. Here is how Jesus motivates us to live by remembering that we are connected to him already. We are living from the fullness that we have in Christ. Jesus tells us who we are because a relationship with God is presupposed. Because we know that we have him as our father. You are this. You are this. You are salt. You are light. Maybe in your life you've heard an awful lot of things that you are not. Maybe in many different ways in your life you can work out the applications of this. People have told you that you are not enough. Maybe some people have told you and you felt in very deep ways you're not for them. Maybe people have told you numerous times in your life that you are not wanted. But have you ever thought about the reality in times in your life in which people have said what you are? When I think back in my life, here are some major things that I've thought about. At ordination, when I was ordained to the gospel ministry, I was told I am qualified. You are qualified. When I was married at my wedding, what I was told is, you are loved. At the birth of my children, I 100% was willing to say to them and one to say, you are mine. You are mine. And beloved, when Jesus says this to us, he is going much deeper. What he is saying is, when you come to the table, you are accepted. And forgiven he is saying at your baptism you are united to me you are washed your sins have been washed by God's grace at the assurance of pardon that we heard today during the worship service Jesus is saying you are forgiven as we conclude the service at the benediction and the blessing of God God's saying, you're mine and you're blessed. We get to look at the scriptures together and think about what God says in his word. Week after week, God is telling us, you are saved. You're redeemed through what Jesus has done. God is building a cruciform community. What it looks like is neediness, new life, and living that new life for the life of the world. Because God doesn't so much have a mission for his people as he does a people for his mission. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for taking time to interact with your disciples and to teach them about your kingdom and how your kingdom is different. So we ask that you would help us to be formed and shaped by the cross continually so that we would continue to know our need, we would continue to live the new life that we find in you, and that we might do that for others, for the life of the world. We pray this Because you are our redeemer, our savior, our friend. In your name, amen. But people of God, don't leave here without knowing that God's blessing is upon you. God tells you that he loves you and he cares for you in Christ. And that this week you can live for him and not self. You can be salt and light wherever God has you. Because you're connected to Jesus. And he will work those things out in you and in us as we engage with the world. Now the God of peace that raised Jesus from the dead, because of the blood of Christ, he is eternally bound to you. And through the blood of Jesus, he is equipping you with every good thing that you need to do his will, like being salt and light. As a matter of fact, it's even better. He's working in you what is pleasing in his sight so that one day he will get all glory, now and forever, because of Christ. Amen. Go in peace.